Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series called Prayer, Power, and Wisdom, and we hope that this blesses you. If you're looking for more information, check us out at newriverchurch.org. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. Proverbs 11, 11, through the blessing of the upright. A city is exalted, but the mouth of the wicked destroy it. Your words carry power. Your words carry power. God has placed you at this time in this place so that your blessing would exalt it. You catch that? The blessing of the upright. It's your blessing that exalts the city. Have you ever been reading the Bible and a verse just jump out at you and grab you in the heart and you... And you just can't, you know, it rattles your cage. You've probably had that happen. That happened to me about six months ago. I'm reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And I come across this passage. And if you have your Bibles, you can open up to them. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It's right about in the middle of your Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And I'm reading verses 13 through 18. And here's what it says. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now, there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Verse 15 is the verse that really snatched my heart. There once was a poor but wise man. In that city there lived a man, poor but wise. And he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. My heart was just flooded with questions. Like, how did he do it? How did he save the city with wisdom? Like, did he call up the king? Hey, king, I've got an idea for you. And, and how did that go? And how exactly does wisdom save the city from an army. Like, you know, I'm thinking army has, well, back then they would have arrows and things like that. So how does wisdom fight against that? And yet it did. And I'm thinking, how does this work? And why didn't the city remember him? I mean, you, you don't want to at least name the library after him. The guy's like a local hero. He saved your city. And yet nobody remembers that poor man. And then I'm thinking, what kind of enemy was it? Was it a physical enemy, like they came at him with guns and knives? Or was it more of a spiritual enemy coming after him with demons and lies? And if it's a spiritual enemy, then maybe that explains why the city never remembered the man, because maybe they didn't even know they were under attack. And this man, with his wisdom and discernment, could see the attack of the devil, and maybe in prayer and wisdom, Sent him away. We don't know. The truth is, 
we don't have the details. And that's part of what drives me nuts when I come across this kind of thing in the Bible. And my mind just starts racing. I wonder, how does this all work? But there's one thing that we know for certain. Wisdom has power. Wisdom has power. You look at it. He's poor but wise. Poor but wise. So his wisdom actually made his poverty a non-issue. He's a poor man, but a wise man. And we tend to see ourselves as poor and helpless oftentimes, don't we? We see problems in our society. We see the confusion in people. We see the destruction of education. We see immorality running rampant. And the, and the truth is we tend to feel poor and helpless. We never really think of ourselves as being poor but wise. And we definitely never think of ourselves as having the kind of wisdom that might possibly save our city. We feel as though we're unable to do anything of really significant value to change things. You know, God, let me look at me. I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm not a president. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not famous. I don't have a platform. Like, how would I use wisdom to save my city? Don't you feel the same way? You know, notice that word, though, the word but. It's a big word, isn't it? Wisdom made the poor man's poverty a non-issue. Being poor had no hold on him. It didn't keep him from saving his whole city with wisdom. So can wisdom really do that for you and me? Can wisdom really elevate you and me beyond our obvious limitations? I think it can. This poor man in Ecclesiastes was poor but wise. It could be said of you, you're young but wise. It could be said of you that you're weak but wise, or that maybe you're a high school dropout but wise, or that you're an ex-con but wise, you're a recovering addict but wise. It could be said of you. Does wisdom really overcome every obstacle in our lives that keeps us from living a meaningful and impactful life? Yes, it does. Wisdom makes that kind of difference. Listen, you might not be called, called upon to save our city, but how about just making your neighborhood a better place to live? Let's start there. How about making your job a better place to work or your school a better place to learn? Like, maybe wisdom could be used in your life to do that. Don't you think? If you're wise, you're in the best position to make the greatest influence. And at the very least, I know this. I know your life is far more significant than poor or whatever false identity you've been using to label yourself with. I know that. You can be an outsider but wise. You can be misunderstood but wise. You can be troubled but wise. You don't need to be perfect to be wise. But there's one thing you can't be and wise. You can't be insignificant and wise. That's impossible. And so we're going to spend a large chunk of our time this summer talking about wisdom and the power of wisdom in our own lives, through our lives. And I'm praying by the end of the summer that we'll discover that whatever I am, if I'm wise, I'll make an impact because that's what wisdom does. 
And my prayer this summer, my prayer is, is this, Lord, teach us. Teach us how to use the wisdom that you've given to us to save our city and not criticize our city. Can you agree with me in that prayer? Teach us, Lord, how to use the wisdom that you've given to us wisely. So let's do it. And the more I've sought and prayed the Lord about this, and it's been like six months or so, I've been working on this, thinking about it a lot. These three concepts have come together, and I think they really merge, and they, they've got to stay together. And these three concepts are prayer, power, and wisdom. Prayer, power, and wisdom form what I'll call the trifecta of maximum local and global impact. How's that for lofty? Right? It's the trifecta of maximum local and global impact. These three words, prayer, power, wisdom. If you want to share with your neighbor, if you want to share Jesus with your neighbor, you'll need prayer, power, and wisdom. If you want to make a difference where you work or go to school, you're going to need them. If you want to save our city, you're going to need prayer, power, and wisdom. If you want to do anything about the problems in our culture and things like that, you're going to need prayer, power, and wisdom. So we need prayer. Why? Prayer's our lifeblood. Man, without prayer, we're dead in the water. But, you know, the truth is, we could build an influential church without prayer. We can do a lot of, you know, good deeds without prayer. But friends, we will do nothing of eternal significance without prayer. We absolutely must have prayer. It makes all of the difference. I believe with all my heart that anything that you see God doing in or through New River Church is a direct result of prayer. You know, many people talk about when they come in, they feel like they feel the presence of God in this space. They feel the presence of God as we worship together. Do you know that's because we pray? That's why. I believe with all my heart. It's because we pray. We ask for it. We seek his face. So prayer is absolutely essential. We need it. The second thing we need is power. Power is the difference between you doing a good deed and God doing a work through you. And, you know, we can all do good deeds without the power of God. It happens all the time. But you've probably been there where you know God's doing something. You've been there? I hope you've ever had that experience. I know that I, I pray that every one of us does, honestly, because there's nothing... There are a few things more exciting and more thrilling than being in that moment where you know that this has nothing to do with you or your abilities or your talents, but you have been given a front row seat into something that God is doing in that moment. Like that right there, that's the power of God. We need more of it. And then we also need wisdom. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. That's the definition of wisdom. The right application of knowledge. Whatever that poor but wise man had, whatever he did to save his city, the one thing he was able to do was figure out a solution and then rightly apply the solution. That's wisdom. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. So the cool thing about wisdom is this. You don't have to be smart or educated to have wisdom. You simply need to be humble enough to ask God for it. God, how do we fix this? God, what do I do about that? 
We were just talking yesterday at, at, a, at Paul's graduation party with a guy who was telling me that in his office he has a, a little space he has set up and it's like a, a place to pray, a little kneeler he has. And he says he'll literally be on a meeting with, on his computer and you know, everybody's there and a meeting will be contentious, it can get kind of hot and, and he'll, he'll block out his picture and mute himself, get off his desk, go over to his, his prayer kneeler and he kneels down and he just, God help, what are we doing? And then he gets back up, turns on his picture, his audio, continues the meeting, and he says time after time after time, the, thing, the solutions start to roll. I believe that. James is pretty clear. Anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives it to all generously without finding fault. So wisdom's available to anybody who's humble enough to ask for it. That's how we find it. So we need prayer, we need power, we need wisdom, and when these three things merge together in the heart of the average Christian, they'll turn that person into a spiritual superhero. They will make that person a blessing to anyone they come into contact with. So that's where we're heading this summer. Does that make sense? But before we get into it today, we need to talk about what it is that we're really up against. We need to identify our enemy. If there's one thing that that poor but wise man could do, he could say, oh, that's the enemy. The, the, the one building siege works outside our city walls, that's the enemy. And he had wisdom about what to do with that enemy. We need to also understand who or what our enemy is. And let me say it this way, our enemy is not other people. Our enemy is never other people. Let me be clear. They might be doing things that you hate. They might believe things that make you cringe. They might say things that make your blood boil. But people are never the, uh, the enemy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 says this. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see that? Other people are never the enemy. So who is our enemy? Well, it's too easy to paint a wide brush and just say, it's the devil. I mean, although, yes, the devil is our enemy, yes. But let's be a little more specific. What's he looking like these days? What costume is he wearing these days in our generation, in our culture? What is it, you see? And listen, I could be wrong, so I'm just going to say this right up front. I didn't find this in a book or anything. This is just what I observe as I pray and as I, you know, live in the world as well. So here's what I see. You could agree with me or you could disagree with me. Totally cool. I believe, as I look at this, here's what the enemy looks like today. He looks like the glorification of self. We live in an age of selfies, selfie sticks, self-care, self-help, do it yourself. We have iPhones, which might as well be called me phones. We know our personal rights, probably more than we know anything else. And if you're in the right club, you get a whole month to fly your flag, get your own flag. If you're in the wrong club, you don't get a flag. We say things like, you do you. My body, my choice, hands off my guns, not my president, follow your heart. 
We love all things made to order just the way you like it. We love taking me some me time. No matter how you slice it, it comes down to self, the glorification of self. We've turned ourselves into a God. So how do we represent Jesus in a world of people who have become their own gods? But it's a more difficult question is this. How do we represent Jesus to a world of people who have become their own gods when we ourselves act like we are our own gods? And if you don't think this is a big deal, there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to talking about it. An entire book of the Bible committed to telling us what we look like when we make ourselves into a God. And there's no surprise that it also happens to be the ugliest book of the Bible. So the most selfish book of the Bible is also the most ugly book of the Bible. Makes sense. There's nothing more isolating than living a self-centered life. Nor is there anything more ruinous to a human being than to become self-centered. So the more self-centered we are, the uglier we become. And this book of the Bible demonstrates that, portrays that clearly. It's the book of Judges. It displays it for us in living color. And this morning, if you want to turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 19 through 21, we're going to come to the end of the book. But let me just kind of give us a quick skim. Nearly every person mentioned in the book of Judges is someone whom you do not want to imitate. Like, you know, there are other people you say, wow, I want to be like that guy. There's nobody in Judges you want to be like. Okay? Um, the book of Judges, it reads like a tabloid. You think you're watching Jersey Shore or something, like Big Brother, one of those kind of shows, you know? You got Samson, he calls his wife a cow. You've got Jephthah sacrificing his own daughter. He kills his own daughter in cold blood. You've got a woman named Jael driving a tent peg through the skull of a man while he sleeps. Yep, it's an exciting book. This book ends with this story in chapters 19 through 21 that is so off the wall that honestly it would be hard to believe if we weren't living in such similar times. I mean, I mean it. I don't think I could believe it if I didn't just see it in front of me almost every day. The book of Judges just, it, it literally, it, it, it like escalates from bad to worse to worse to just horrendous. And this is where we end, Judges chapter 19 through 21. But here is what Judges concludes with. The last sentence of the book, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. How did everyone live? As they saw fit. Go ahead, you can answer that. It's not a trick question. How did everyone live in those days? As they saw fit. Some versions of the Bible say that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Did whatever was right in his own eyes. Everyone did as they saw fit. You see what I mean? This is where we live right now. We, we, live, we live where everyone does whatever's right in their own eyes. 
We follow our feelings. We follow our heart. We follow our own sexual impulses. We follow what feels right to us. But follow God? (sniffs) Follow law? Mm, We don't want to do that. Follow anything that makes sense? Nah, we don't want to do that either. We follow everything else, don't we? We live in a culture that worships and glorifies the God of self. And this is what the devil looks like right now. This is the costume he's wearing right now. Let's say it again. People who worship themselves are not the enemy. We need to understand that. The enemy is the one pulling the strings behind the scenes, deceiving people into worshiping themselves. The enemy is the one behind the scenes convincing us that the worship of self is actually a good thing. See, not the person trapped in it, the one behind it. That's who we're going after. And God has given you wisdom not to attack that person, but to identify the enemy and then to undo his sinister plan to steal, kill, and destroy these precious ones for whom Jesus has died. God gave you wisdom not to criticize and judge the culture. He's given you wisdom to save it. And it's something that God has been convicting me of. These last few months have been preparing for this. I see all the ways that God has given me wisdom. He's given me wisdom because I have his word. I ask him for it. He tells you to do it. He gives it to you. And then I take that wisdom And I turn around and I criticize and I judge the world who doesn't have that wisdom. Well, how can they have that wisdom if they don't have God? So it seems to me that criticizing and judging is actually a wrong use of the gift that God's given to you and me as his people. I want to use the wisdom he's given to me not to criticize and judge, but to figure out how to save and bless. Amen? There we go. So that's the goal of this series. That's where we're at. We live in a culture that's doing that. And heads up, friends, by the time you're done, I think we're going to discover that you and I also worship the God of self. It's not just a problem for them. It's a problem for us. And you say, well, if the worship of self is so ugly, well, then why is the book of Judges in the Bible? I mean, shouldn't the Bible be all about, you know, positive things and encouraging things, uplifting things. Say, yes, it is. The Bible is very uplifting and encouraging, and Judges is actually very uplifting and encouraging. The reason why the book of Judges isn't in the Bible, here's some wisdom for you, is this. The one way, the only way, the best way to defeat the God of self is to stare it in its ugly face and see it for what it is. Because it sells itself to us by showing us how nice it is. I mean, let's put it this way. Doesn't it feel good to follow your feelings? Doesn't it? It does. It's a, I mean, come on, let's not lie about that. I have feelings, and it feels good to satisfy those feelings. True? The only problem with that is, do you know what that looks like afterwards. How many of you ever regret following your feelings? See, I have. I got a lot of times I follow my feelings and wish I hadn't have done that. It wasn't the wisest move. See, that's how the God of this age sells it. Let me show you. This is, this is, it looks good. 
So how, how do I know, how, how do I find strength to overcome this temptation? Partly by seeing how ugly it is. By seeing where it leads. And, if, and it's almost like in the book of Judges, God takes the mask off and says, oh, see, it's not that pretty. See how ugly it is? And then we see it for what it is, and we go, oh, I don't want that. And we begin to seek God for the answer against that. You follow? So this is what Judges does. So while it looks ugly, it's actually very uplifting. So what's what we're going to look at here today? And how ugly is the God of self? Well, as we said it culminates with this story in the book of Judges. The book of Judges literally ends with this story. Let's take a look at it. I'm going to give us the cliff notes just for the sake of time. But if you would open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 19, you can keep me honest as we walk through the story. But here is how this book ends. And I warn you, it's not pretty. Chapter 19 opens up with a Levite. And this Levite had a concubine. Now, Levite means he's from the tribe of Levi. Remember in Israel, back then, there were 12 tribes. I wish I had 12 fingers. You got 12 tribes. And one of the tribes of Israel were the Levites. They came from Levi, okay? Now, the Levites served as priests in the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're the spiritual influencers. They are the religious leaders. They are the servants of God. And this Levite has a concubine. Now, this means that he already has a wife, but he decided to marry another woman, too. But in that culture, legally speaking, the first wife had all the rights. So she, has the, she shares the inheritance and all that sort of thing. She shares the estate as the first wife, but any subsequent wife doesn't have those rights. She's called a concubine. In essence, this woman, a concubine, is a glorified girlfriend. Do you see the problem? He's a Levite charged with the responsibility of leading people spiritually. And he has a girlfriend. And nobody says anything about it. You see, when you follow whatever's right in your own eyes, you can do that. But it doesn't turn out so well. Judges 19 verse 2 says, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him, and she went back to her dad's house. Of course, if she's also living by whatever feels right, then eventually she's going to reach a point where this arrangement doesn't work, and so she goes back to dad. Okay. So she blows out of town. Verse 2 says she stays with her dad four months. Four months, that's important. And then the Levite decides to go looking for her. That tells you how important she was. Ladies, doesn't that just melt your heart, okay? It's the stuff that romance novels are made of. She leaves, and she's gone for four months before he notices that she's missing. Right, okay. So finally, four months later, he decides to go find her at her dad's house. He shows up at her dad's house, where apparently the Levite and the dad tend to really get along well, and they party for five days. Five days, they're having a great time. Finally, the fifth day rolls around, and the Levite's like, you know, we got to bounce. And so he loads up his girlfriend, 
the father's daughter, loads her up, and they start to head out, and they leave, and as they leave, it starts to get dark. And they decide, we need to find a place to stay for the night. They're close to this city called Jebus, where the Jebusites lived. It eventually became Jerusalem, but this is hundreds of years before that happened. So he comes into this place, there's Jebus, and Jebus was not Israelite. So they weren't Jews, they weren't the Israelites. And so this Levite says, you know, I, we don't want to stay there. They're the, they're the pagans, you know, they're not Jews. And instead, I'd rather push on, let's go to this city, other city called Gibeah. And, and so that's what they do. They decide to go to Gibeah, which is just a little bit further. And Gibeah happens to be located within the tribe of Benjamin. Now, when you think tribes, think states. Because each one of the 12 tribes had a territory within the country. And within each tribe, you had different cities and towns. Does that make sense? So Gibeah is in the tribe of, kind of the state of, it's sort of how we would arrange it, of Benjamin, if you will. And he's pushing on to Gibeah because he doesn't want to stay in Jebus because that's kind of the bad side of the tracks. So they go, and this does not work out very well either. As we see the story progress, it would have been better for them to have stayed the night with the pagans than to have gone and spent the night with his own fellow Jewish people, which is Judge's way of sending us a not-so-subtle message that even God's own people, doing whatever looks right in their own eyes, have become worse than the pagans. What happened? Well, like I said, it's not pretty. That night, the Levite and his girlfriend end up staying at somebody's house, which was very common back then. There was no hotels, so hospitality was a big deal. So he, one of the residents of Gibeah invite the Levite and his concubine to stay at his home for the night. That's perfectly fine. That's good. And in the middle of the night, men from the city of Gibeah, the town, they come and they surround the house and they demand that the Levite come outside so that they can have sex with him. To appease the inflamed crowd, the Levite doesn't go out himself, but he sends his concubine out. How's that, ladies? Right, okay. So sends the concubine out, where they rape and abuse her all night long. By early morning, she's found dead on the doorstep. The Levite gets up, puts her body on his donkey, carries her the rest of the way home. When he gets home, he takes a knife, he cuts her body up into 12 pieces and then sends one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. How would you like to get that package? This infuriates the other 11 tribes against the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, infuriated. They, they have been triggered. They are worked up. And they decide that they're going to fight Benjamin and kill and wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. And this is what they do. A civil war happens, and they end up killing the entire tribe of Benjamin except for 300 young men. Women, children, men, wipe them out. And there's only 300 Benjamites that are left. In addition to that, the 11 tribes all made a vow to each other that we will never allow any of our daughters to marry any of those Benjamite men. And they made this vow together to do that. So in their anger, and then all of a sudden, it hits them. They have this wake-up moment. 
in their anger, in their indignation, in their haste, they basically wiped out an entire tribe, leaving Benjamin no hope of rebuilding. And they become grief-stricken. They go walking around going, no, this should not be happening in Israel. This is terrible. And like, you did it. But they all act like they're remorseful. It seems crazy to think that like this is when they realize it was a bad move. <laughs> you know? It's like after you've slaughtered an entire tribe of people, that's when you think that it's a bad idea? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that's what happens when you do whatever's right in your own eyes. That's what happens when you follow your heart. It's not until after that you wake up and realize it was a bad move. So remember, everyone did as they saw fit. So how did they, in their infinite wisdom, figure out a way to resolve this problem? Now we have 300 single Benjamite men, and there's no women. Therefore, you know the math. You know how it works. It's not going to be long before the tribe of Benjamin dies out. Oh, and here's the other problem. We all made a vow together that we're not going to let any of our daughters marry those guys. So now how do we solve this problem? You know how they solve the problem? Apparently, one of the towns didn't make it to that meeting where they decided to not let their daughters marry the Benjamites. This is why you should always show up to a meeting, right here. Right here is why. So the town of Shiloh did not show up to the meeting, apparently. And so, and so the other guys all got together and they said, here's what we're going to do. You know what? There's this festival that's about to happen in Shiloh, and they're not here. So their daughters are going to go out dancing in the fields. Well, let me read it for you. Judges chapter 21, verse 20. It says, so they instructed the Benjamites, saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch when the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you sees one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we'll say to them, don't do us the favor of helping them because we did not get wives for them during the war. You will not be found guilty of breaking your oath because you did not, you know, technically give your daughters to them. Technically. Your daughters were abducted, grabbed, but you didn't give them, you know. Jeez. Okay. So, verse 23. So that is what they did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one, carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned. To, I just picture cavemen with clubs and grab himself a woman and, you know, anyway, it is Neanderthal. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. What did they do? Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. And this right here, my friend, is where the book of Judges ends. You're right. You look at that. Don't you look at that? You think, shouldn't there be another page? Like, that seems like that's a really bad ending. So it ends with guys jumping out of bushes and grabbing girls. This is how the book of Judges ends. Yes, because this is what happens when everyone does whatever is right in his own eyes. 
It's a weird way to end the book, but it does leave you to think, doesn't it? If I live my life doing whatever I feel like doing, doing whatever feels right to me, this is what I will look like. Perhaps this is why it ends this way, because we are still doing it. And there's something else that just, I can't escape. What's horrible about this story is the way that women are treated. Does that bother you? Bothers me. You know, when a culture sells itself out to doing whatever is right in its own eyes, when a culture decides that it's going to follow its heart, the first people to get hurt are women and children. And we're seeing that in our culture now, aren't we? Judges is filled with it. Judges has child sacrifice, doing whatever's right in their own eyes. Judges has men jumping out of bushes, grabbing women, whatever's right in their own eyes. When a culture sells itself to following its heart, the first people to suffer are women and children. And we can certainly see that in our culture as it has worked for many years now to, to downgrade masculinity, to remove the need for manhood, right? To feminize the culture. And then as it's worked to remove God from the culture, it's becoming more and more unsafe these days to be a woman or a child. And all of that in the name of feminism and setting women free. Interesting how the devil works, doesn't he? Boy, is he sly. And could God possibly give us wisdom to know what to do about that? Like, is it possible that God's people might actually have solutions for this that the rest of the world can't even begin to come up with? They can't begin to think of it. But you could because you got on your knees and you started to seek the face of God about how this could be fixed and you started to seek in the word about what could be done about this, you think it's possible, I do, that you could be that poor but wise man who saved a city with wisdom, that poor but wise woman who saved the city with wisdom, I think so. This is what we're up against. But you know, before we go after the enemy out there, we need to go after the enemy in our own souls. How can we convince the world that Jesus is worth following when we don't even believe that Jesus is worth following? And I know that you argue with me. You say, I'm a Christian. I, I follow Jesus. Are you sure? Are you sure that you follow him? Not just in name, but I mean actually follow him. O obeying him. Or, or if you were to evaluate it, wouldn't you have to admit that there are aspects of your life that you know that you've justified and that you've watered down to make yourself more comfortable because Jesus has called you to this, but that's too hard for you, you think, so you'll settle at this. See, 
You see what I mean? You see how, you know, do I, do I have to talk about the things that we know are in the Bible that we avoid? We pass them off as being Old Testament. Don't we do that sometimes? Oh, that's Old Testament, which means I don't have to obey it. That's, what, that's code. That's Christian code for I can ignore it. It's Old Testament. Or, or we say things like it doesn't really mean that. Or, or we insist that God doesn't really expect me to do that. I mean, surely he wants me to be comfortable and safe, doesn't he? Read your Bibles. Doesn't seem like it's that high of a priority to God. Just, just saying it. How often have we approached Scripture by saying, well, this is what I think it means. That's what I think. When really that's not the point, is it? Isn't the point what God is saying? Not what you think it's saying, but what's God saying? Like, that's the idea, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's His word after all. It's not yours. But you see, when, when I can read the Scripture and I can say, well, this is what I think it says, well, now I can water it down and make it comfortable for Doug Rouse. And Christians do that all the time. So I'm asking a question. Are you sure you follow Jesus? Because wouldn't the first step to convincing the world that Jesus is worth following is to have a group of people who are actually convinced that Jesus is worth following and who do it? That show the world how to do it? And I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm in the same boat. I'm just asking us to evaluate it. Like if, we, if, if we're going to be serious about this, that I need to show the world what it looks like when a man sells himself out to following Jesus. And, and I know that it doesn't look like a guy that, that, you know, squirms and squiggles out of the hard things that Scripture tells him to do. I know that. So at the very least, I, I have to be able to say, I know that the Bible's saying this, and, I, and it is hard. I'm telling you, it's hard. And, and I'm, I'm dying to myself, and... And I know I'm not doing it right, but I'm, God forgive me, and I'm, I'm working on it. And right? At the very least, that ought to be our approach, shouldn't it? As opposed to just figuring out a nice way to cover it over and move on with our lives. So, yeah. You know, I, I, I might disagree with those holding signs declaring my body my choice, but hey, I admire their honesty. Many Christians live the same way. We just call it by a different name. One of the things the world accuses the Christians of being is judgmental and hypocritical. How, how refreshing like, would it be if, if we were to take seriously this call and, and dethrone this false god of self, self from our own lives and then let the world watch us do it? I wonder what that would look like the world was to see a group of people who were actively working to dethrone that God of self in their own lives. Hmm. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're, you know how confusing and stressful it is to follow your heart. Like, you've been doing it and, and you know that it doesn't work. And you have a whole string of failed relationships. You have a whole string of things you regret all because you're trying to follow your feelings and follow your heart. You're following that. And, and you're here this morning, and you're like, oh, let me tell you, I've lived the book of Judges. Yeah, it's not pretty. I get it. I want you to know something today. Jesus loves you. 
He loves you. You might look in the mirror and see ugly. Jesus sees someone that he died for, that he adores, that he loves. And he's more than ready to walk with you and pick up all those broken pieces that you created in your life. He's more than willing to step in and and walk with you and pick all those up, put them together. He loves you. Scripture's pretty clear that if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just, and he'll forgive us of our sins and he'll cleanse us from unrighteousness. He will. He's clear about that. Scriptures makes it plain. So you know what? If you're here this morning and, and you know that this is you, you know that you've made a mess of things, I can confidently tell you that you are like right there. You're just, you're on the right path. First step is acknowledging it. Second part is asking God to forgive you. He's willing to do it. Ask him. That's all you need to do. Third part is, third part is then welcoming Christ to come into your life. Jesus, I, I need you to come and lead me. I need you to come and be my Lord, Jesus, because I've been my own Lord and it doesn't work. So, Jesus, I need you to come be my Lord and submit to him today. This is how we begin. And you know what? He's more than ready to do it. So this morning, that's who we're calling out to today. There's two of us here today. Some of us have been wearing the T-shirt Christian for a long time, but we're really not following Jesus. And I'm calling you to a higher living this morning. I'm calling you to begin to follow, to begin to actually do what you say you're doing. Follow Jesus. Submit to his word. And then the others in this room are those that maybe have never done that. And I'm inviting you to begin it today. Jesus is here waiting for you. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.